Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word that you may grow by it. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us many great and precious promises, that through them we have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Father, Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's a great privilege we have to be able to read your word, study your word, uh, internalize your word, that the promise of your word is that through Jesus we may have life, and that life will be an abundant life. That means we will have a capacity for truly understanding what life is, what our purpose is, because you have created us and designed us to uh, serve you and to glorify you. And in doing that, we have great fulfillment. It brings us great joy and pleasure. And we know that it has, it bears fruit that we cannot see. Father, as we study your word, we know that it enriches us, it challenges us, sometimes it corrects us, but all in all, it is designed to teach us what you have revealed to us and how we should live and our purpose in life. And above all, it explains to us how we can have a closer relationship with you, come to understand who you are and what you have provided for us in salvation, that we might have eternal life by simply trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So now, Father, as we continue to study in Ephesians, we pray that you can help us to understand these things and understand the challenges that are set before us and the verses we're studying, that we may apply them in our, in our thinking and in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, are a difficult passage for many people to understand because there is a list of sins in those passages, and at the end there is this statement that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we have entered into a study of that specifically to try to understand what is meant by that phrase to inherit the kingdom of God. So to begin with, just to review a little bit what I covered last time and to set the framework for a lot of that which we will study over the next couple of weeks, we must understand the basics of our salvation because it seems at a surface reading of that passage that if you commit certain sins or if you practice certain sins, as a verb in some passages is used, that that means that you're either A, going to lose your salvation, or B, you weren't ever truly saved, which are the options that some people teach. But we believe that God has saved us apart from works, and that sin has been dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever in terms of the penalty of sin. And so I want to basically just remind us of what happens when we trust in Christ as Savior. This is what the Bible refers to as justification, that how does a person become just before God if they have committed uh, sins and are unrighteous? We know that God is absolutely perfect. He is absolute righteousness plus R, and he is absolute justice. But we are not. Scripture clearly indicts every human being. Isaiah, who was one of the greatest prophets to Israel in the Old Testament, and many would say would have been a godly man, writes in Isaiah 64, 6, for all of us, including himself, Every human being, all of us have become like one who is unclean. 
and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. We often read that all of our unrighteousness is like a filthy garment, but that isn't what it says. It says all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment because we as human beings are born in a condition of sin. We have inherited a sin nature and the corruption of sin, and we are born under the penalty of sin, which is eternal condemnation. But God in his grace provides a solution. But a lot of people can look around and they see others and they say, well, I'm a lot better than they are. I'm more moral than they are. I don't do this and I don't do that. But God is saying other people are not the standard. The standard is his own absolute perfect righteousness. So Paul will write in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the righteousness of God. This is what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 64.6. So here we are, we lack righteousness. We are minus R. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves righteous because of the corruption of sin. So when Christ came, he came with the purpose to pay the penalty for sin. That's what the cross of Christ is all about. Jesus Christ was perfect righteousness. Scripture says that he did not know any sin. He was without sin. And on the cross, he pays for our sin. So that 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. He, referring to God the Father, made him who knew no sin. See, God is going to put all of our sins, the technical word is to impute, to credit, to Christ's account, all of our sins. He doesn't make Jesus a sinner. He imputes to his, to him our sins. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. It's that substitutionary atonement that we talked about several weeks ago. Uh, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that for the purpose that uh, we might become the righteousness of God in him so that our sins are imputed to Christ on the cross. And when we trust in him, his sins are imputed to us so that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, not our righteousness. He declares us judicially to be righteous because we possess the righteousness of Christ. And so that allows God then uh, to bless us. So that often when we read in the scriptures, when you read in the Psalms and David is writing, uh, sometimes it sounds like he's talking about experiential righteousness, but often he is talking about uh, this imputed righteousness. We'll come back to this in a passage we're studying today on Abraham, that Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. It wasn't based on works. This is a long time. Um, this is about six or 700 years before the Ten Commandments were given, before the Mosaic Law was given, before there were any of those uh, rituals or requirements under the law given that were not requirements for salvation, by the way, but for how a righteous people or a nation of believers were to live. And so uh, he's declared righteous, Genesis 15, 6 says. And that's important to keep that in mind as we go through our study, that the moment we trust Christ as Savior, God looks at us not in terms of the sins we commit, but in terms of the righteousness we possess that God has given us. God doesn't make us righteous. God doesn't infuse us with righteousness. He declares us righteous because we possess the righteousness of Christ. And that is the basis for our salvation. So that if we were to die today and we were to appear before God in heaven, and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? You would say not, oh, well, I did good deeds. I went to church this morning. I did this and I did that. But you would say, Jesus died for me and I have his righteousness. That's the basis for our salvation. 
And it is a secure salvation, one we cannot lose. I reminded you of these great promises last week. Uh, Jesus said in John ten twenty eight and 29, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So we've got a double grip on us. The Son has us in His grip. The Father has us in His grip. And there's nothing we can do. Why? Because there was nothing we did to acquire righteousness. That was a free gift. We trusted in Christ and eternal life and righteousness were freely given to us. In Romans eight thirty-eight and 39, The Apostle Paul said, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is what? In Christ Jesus. In Christ we have been declared righteous. And then a passage that relates to what we are discussing uh, today and in the coming couple of weeks. Peter writes at the opening of his first epistle, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that will not fade away, reserved. Actually, the I don't like the translation there. The Greek word is tereo, which means to keep. That's how it's translated in other verses that talk about the assurance of salvation. So I, these things need to be consistently translated. It does not fade away. It is kept in heaven for us. Who keeps it? We're kept. That word is a slightly different word. It means we're guarded, that God guards our salvation, our inheritance, that that we are guarded by the power of God. It is God who preserves us. It is not we who preserve ourselves. We are uh, guarded by the power of God through faith for salvation, not through works, remember, just through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So before we look at our passage again, we have to be reminded that there is no sin that we can commit that would cause us to either lose our salvation or to realize that, that uh uh-oh, there was some sin that was not paid for. Every sin was paid for. So this passage is not talking about not having eternal life, losing eternal life, forfeiting our eternal destiny in heaven. It is warning us that sins have consequences both now and eternity, but it does not include eternal punishment. There are other consequences. So in Ephesians 5.3, we have these list of sins, but fornication, which is a word that in the Greek that covers all every category of sexual sin other than sex within marriage between one man and one woman. For fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, a term for believers. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, notice he's going back and repeating the first three that he mentioned, um, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. So we have to ask, well, what does that mean? Because most people read that that has something to do with uh, getting eternal life, but it is something different. So we have to ask these questions. Why are these particular sins mentioned? How do they relate to those mentioned in Ephesians 4.25 and following? Second, further, how does this relate to the following sections down to Ephesians 5.18? Notice a continued contrast between one way of life and conduct, darkness versus light, 
foolish versus wise, spirituality by drunkenness versus spirituality through the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then the question we must answer first is, what does it mean to not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God? And so because it is so open to misinterpretation, misunderstanding, we need to spend a little time uh, talking about this. There are parallel passages that say the same thing. Galatians 5.19 mentions 17 different sins and then concludes at the bottom that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we have this comparison also with 1 Corinthians 6.9, which says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then it lists... Uh, seven sins, I believe, and ends with the statement that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we have to ask this question. What does the Bible teach about inheriting the kingdom? We have to remember what the kingdom is. There are some who think that ever since Jesus ascended to heaven, we are in a spiritual kingdom. Uh, there is a view called amillennialism. The a is a negative word like uh, pre- our prefix like un, and it means no millennium. Millennium comes from the Latin word milli, meaning a thousand. And so we believe that according to Revelation 20, that Jesus will return to the earth and establish his kingdom on the earth, which was predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament. This is why you have Jesus coming at the first first coming. Uh, When he was born, they sang praise for the king has come. And he came, and he offered the kingdom to Israel, and Israel rejected it. And we will see that some believe today that because Israel rejected it, they forfeited the promises given to Abraham, and that is not true. Interestingly, I had a conversation with a with a neighbor this last week where this, this came up. You never know. That's why we always have to understand these things so that uh, when these things come up in just conversation— uh, that you don't expect, you're ready to explain and uh, explain that to those, as Peter says, giving an answer for the hope that is within us. And so the kingdom must be understood as that kingdom that will be ruled by a descendant of King David that will last at least a thousand years. That's just the first part. And then it goes on for eternity that it will fulfill the promises that God made to Israel, made to Abraham and to Israel in the Old Testament, and that they will all be literally fulfilled as they were given. We know that because there are at least a hundred, some say a hundred, closer to 150 promises, allusions, or types, examples in the Old Testament that relate that were fulfilled by Jesus in his first coming the ones that were not relate to the establishment of the kingdom so because the jews rejected his offer that part has been postponed but those will be literally fulfilled when he comes because we know that of all these prophecies types examples that were made in the uh, old testament that have been fulfilled they were fulfilled in a literal manner he was born in Bethlehem. Michael five, Micah 5 2 says that that was the place where the Messiah would be born. He would be a literal descendant of David, which was predicted in, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11 and following, that this is related to the, that covenant God made with David, that he would have a descendant that would sit on his throne forever and ever that he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah uh, chapter 7 verse 11 is about the birth of uh, the Messiah, that the his mother would be a virgin, virgin conception and virgin birth. And there are a number of other uh, prophecies that were fulfilled literally uh, by Jesus. 
So we know that the prophecies that did not get fulfilled when he came the first time related to his ruling and reigning on earth from the throne of David. That's the kingdom. So we have to understand what that kingdom is to understand what we're talking about. But the key issue is understanding this word for inheritance. So what we have seen so far in our study of Ephesians is that there are two kinds of inheritance that are described in the book of Ephesians. The first is an eternal inheritance, a one that is ours forever and ever. It is guaranteed to us by what is described in Ephesians 1 as the sealing by the Spirit, that in other words, uh, for those of you who have a good understanding of the history of Texas and the history of the West, basically when you believe in Jesus, God brands you with his brand of ownership, and that can never be taken away. It can never be changed. And so what that means is we have a guaranteed inheritance that includes a new resurrection body that will be uh, patterned after the resurrection body of Christ. We will have uh, life without end. We will be in the millennial kingdom, and we will be in eternity with the Lord, part of the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And that is true for every person who trusts in Christ as Savior. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul addressing the Gentile Ephesians says, in him, that is in Christ, you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. They believed that Christ died on the cross for their sins, paid for those sins, and that it was not based on works at all. He said, in whom also having believed you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So that eternal guarantee, that promise is ours forever and ever. So we have a choice. Sometimes we doubt. Everybody goes through times when you doubt. So when you doubt, are you going to trust the promise of eternal omniscient God? Are you going to trust your feelings, your emotions, your uh, conscience, your guilt complex, something like that? We always trust what God says. Second kind of inheritance is a reward inheritance to those who grow spiritually in their faithfulness to the Lord and who uh, serve him. This is described in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. We'll mention again in just a minute. So that's the first thing. There's two kinds of inheritance. You have to distinguish between the eternal guaranteed inheritance that is the same for every believer for all eternity or the reward inheritance that is to those who uh, perform above and beyond uh, the call of duty, as it were. This is, uh, it's clear in the second point that salvation inheritance is not earned. It is not based on what we do, what we don't do. It's not based on our lack of certain sins. It is not forfeited because we commit certain sins, because the sin penalty was paid for at the cross. So salvation is given as a free free gift, but the Bible says rewards are earned. You're rewarded for something you do. It is like a, you can think of a uh, contract for a professional uh, athlete. He will be hired for a team, football team, basketball team, baseball team. He will be given a certain base salary. That is guaranteed whether he ever bats or whether he ever gets out on the field, ever scores a goal. It doesn't matter. That that um, income is guaranteed. That's our eternal inheritance. But then there's an incentive clause that if you do well, you will have these additional bonuses that will come your way. So that is what we see here, is that there is a guaranteed contract of our eternal salvation, but then there are incentive clauses for uh, for obedience. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 has both in mind. Verses 8 and 9 talk about our eternal salvation. For by grace, it is God's free gift. It is not something that we earn. It is a gift. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith by simply trusting in God's promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. And that, that that refers to the by grace through faith salvation. That is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. That's a key phrase. Remember that, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we, that is, we as believers in Jesus Christ are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We studied this. That's talking about we who are in the body of Christ, who have trusted Christ as Savior, are his workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So good works isn't a basis for our salvation or the basis of our continued salvation, but it is what we are saved and those in the body of Christ are to serve God uh, and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to walk in them, live in them. Walking is a metaphor used throughout Scripture for the Christian life. It is what we are supposed to do after we're saved, but it's up to us. Many people just say, okay, I'm glad I'm going to go to heaven and that's it. But what God is saying in these passages is I'm giving you an incentive to walk faithfully, to walk worthily. In Revelation 22:12, near the end of the New Testament, Jesus said, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Well, wait a minute. I thought you just said that we're not saved by works. That's salvation. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is free. Rewards are earned. That's the incentive clause. So that's what Jesus is saying is I'm going to come back. I've got the bonus packages with me to give to everyone according to his work, according to his performance. Second John 1 8 says the same thing. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. We'll see that in, in a minute. Uh, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 3 that says that there are those at the judgment seat of Christ who lose reward. They don't lose salvation, but they lose reward. Colossians 3.24 says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So this is talking about an, an inheritance that is a reward, not the inheritance that is guaranteed that is based on our salvation by grace through faith. But this is the incentive clause, the reward of the inheritance. So again, we're back to those two kinds of inheritance, one that is guaranteed to every believer that includes eternal life, a resurrection a body, joy, indescribable, and a fullness of blessings. But then there's additional incentives. The evaluation comes at what is called the judgment seat of Christ. Sometimes it's referred to as the bema, the Greek word that describes the judgment seat. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, for we must all, so it's already talking about we believers must all, so all believers are in heaven when this takes place. So we're not talking about getting into heaven for everlasting life. You already have it because you're there. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed. That means payback. Wait a minute. Is that based on works? Yes, it's reward. But it's not talking about eternal salvation. That was a free gift. That That's why you're there. Now it's recompense for his work, his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we have the Bema seat, which Bema refers to a raised or elevated seat where a magistrate or an athletic judge would sit and um, make decisions. And so they had, if you went to the Olympics and you went to the stadium in Delphi or in Corinth or uh, other places, there would be a section you could see where the seats were different. They are where the judges sat. That's the Bema seat. And so here we have a picture of where the Bema was in Corinth, and that is where this wall is, and there is a uh, sign on that wall, Bema, that you can see 
uh, from when I was there 20-something, 20 years ago, I think. So we must all appear. So that's, we must. It's necessary that we all appear. And it's based on our work. The word ergon for work is that which we do. And then the command is conduct yourselves. This is the word anistrefo. Now, we have all studied a number of things related to this in our studies in Ephesians. In Ephesians 4.1, at the beginning of the last chapter, Paul said what? That we're to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. Then some 17 verses later, he says, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. Then when we get into Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse, verse 2, he says we are to walk in love. And then later he's going to say we're going to walk in truth. So this describes how we live. That's a metaphor for how a person lives. In our study in Philippians on Thursday nights, we've seen that a different metaphor was used. The verb was poly. Tuo, which is the word from uh, a root poly, P-O-L-I, where, where the Greeks had the word polis, which is a word for city, where we get our word politics, and it describes uh, how a citizen lived. So because uh, those who lived in Philippi, it was a Roman colony, they had a Roman citizenship, uh, that's just a synonym. It's just another way of talking about how you conduct your life. And for Peter, he uses this word, anastrefo. But it's the same idea. Over and again, the Bible talks not only about what we should do to be saved, which is simply to trust in Christ, and what we should do after we're saved, how we should live. It doesn't threaten our salvation that's secure. So he says, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And again, why? Revelation 22.12, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're judged according to what we have practiced. 1 Corinthians 3.11 is the central passage on the judgment seat of Christ and described it in terms of building or constructing a a building. We do that with our life. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that's the foundation for what we are building in terms of our spiritual life. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, that's talking about living the rest of your life, you build with certain types of building materials. There are two categories, those which have an enduring value and those which are easily destroyed. Uh, They are described as gold, silver, precious stones. That is that which has an enduring value and wood, hay, and straw, which has only a temporary value. Then in verse 13, Paul says, each one's work will become clear. When? At the judgment seat of Christ. That's the passage in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. This is all a metaphor. It's as if you built this building, but you can't tell what has enduring value. Where's the gold, silver, and precious stones? Well, let's strike a match. It'll burn up all the wood, hay, and straw, and what's left is that which has enduring value, the gold, silver, and precious stones. And for that, we are rewarded. We wouldn't be there if we weren't saved. This is the incentive clause determining what ha- what is rewardable. So Paul says in verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So they will lose rewards. There will be those who have uh, frittered away their time on earth. Uh, They lived according to the lusts of their sin nature. And rather than using God's gracious provisions uh, to gain forgiveness and cleansing, they've just continued in their rebellion. So they will suffer loss, but they're still saved. They're still going to go into heaven. They will still be in the millennial kingdom. So our conclusion is, in point number three, for some there will be rewards, for others there will be a loss of reward, but not a loss of salvation. 
the eternal, which is the eternal guaranteed inheritance. The difference is that which is done when you walk by the Spirit. Now, that tells us that, that we as Christians are, have two options from what we study. We either walk according to the Spirit or we walk according to our sin nature. When we walk according to our sin nature, we confess sin. God forgives us and cleanses us so that we can resume our walk by the Spirit. But we can be moral, we can read our Bible, we can witness, we can do lots of good deeds, give money, all kinds of things. But if it is done in the power of the sin nature, it has no eternal value. The only thing that has value is when we're walking by the Spirit, that which the Holy Spirit is producing within us. So to start our study, we have to understand what inheritance meant in the Old Testament. The concepts that we run across in the New Testament, concepts related to salvation, redemption, reconciliation, we read of sacrifice and penalty, we read any number of words, holiness, love, all of these words are words that have their foundation in the Old Testament. So we have to always go back there to find out what do these words, what is the context? Because when you get to, into the New Testament and we look at a number of these passages, Paul or Peter are writing to some who are Jewish in the congregation that have a background in the Old Testament and others did not. But the background is always going back, understanding where it began in the Old Testament. So what did it mean? What did inheritance mean in the Old Testament? Now today, if you think about inheritance, you'll go look at a dictionary. What does inheritance mean? Uh, so I looked online today to see how, um, how how it would come up. And I looked at the uh, Merriam-Webster online, which was dated for 2023. And it lists four meanings. The first is to receive something for, from an ancestor as a right or title uh, descendable by law at the ancestor's death. Uh, the second, both meanings have something to do. Somebody dies and we have an inheritance. Second meaning also has the same thing, received from a parent or ancestor by genetic transmission something. Or third, to have in turn or receive as if from an ancestor uh, an inherited problem from a predecessor. The fourth meaning is to come into possession. It's interesting in my 11th edition of Miriam's Collegiate Dictionary, it has that as the first meaning. So somehow this it gets changed. It was inconsistent. But anyhow, the point is that, that for most people, when they read inheritance, they think somebody died and I received something. But the core meaning of the Hebrew word is just to possess something so that something is given to somebody as a possession. Nobody necessarily dies. It's just a gift. And so now this is your possession. And because it's your possession, you can pass it on to those who descend from you. The first place that it is used is in Galatians 15. I decided to spend a little bit of time on this because of the things that are going on in the world today. Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 are the two key passages in the Old Testament where God makes a unilateral, unconditional promise or covenant contract with Abram. Now, when I say unconditional, that means God is telling Abraham, I'm going to give you something, and it's yours, it's your possession, whether you obey me or disobey me, whether you're good, whether you're bad, whatever you do, it's still your possession. Okay, that's un no conditions. He's not saying, if you do what I say to do, then I'll give it to you. No, he's saying, I'm just giving this to you as a free gift. The word unilateral means that it is not a contract where the person making the covenant, the person who's the second party to the covenant, both sign the contract. It is signed only by the first person. It's signed only by God, and we'll see that in this passage. So at the beginning, uh, near the beginning of the chapter, in verses verse 7 and 8, we have the first use of inherit. And God is speaking, and he says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of the out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to inherit it. I would retranslate to possess it. 
God's going to give it to Abram. Here's a question. Did Abram ever possess it? No. All he ever got at the end was he bought a cave in Hebron called Machpelah, and that is where he and Sarah were buried. That's all he ever actually owned. So that means, implies, he's got to be raised from the dead for God to give him the land so that God will be true to his promise. And Abram replied to God in verse 8, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? See, Abram's not just going to have this sort of empty, vacuous faith. Oh, great, Lord. He says, okay, Lord, what's the evidence of this? How am I going to know that I'm going to receive it, that I will possess it? And so the answer is in the Abrahamic covenant. And the context will explain the background. So what is going on here is that God has already promised back in uh, Genesis 12 that uh, Abram is going to have an heir and that this heir will receive these promises that God has made to Abram, including the land. And so uh, about 20 years has gone by and Abram saying, I don't have a son yet. I'm getting too old. My wife's too old. I've got a great idea, God. I'm going to help you out. Why don't we take my servant? He's faithful. He's obedient. I'll adopt him, and he will become the heir. And God says, no, I'm going to give you an heir from your own body. And that's the promise in 15.4. Second, he promised that the number of descendants through this heir, who will be Isaac, through this heir would be innumerable, like the number of stars in the sky and grains of sand on the seashore. Verse 5, third, the promise is guaranteed by the character of God and will be fulfilled because the omnipotent God has the ability to do what he promised. God doesn't promise what he can't come through with, and he can. And he is able to come through with this promise. So in the Abrahamic covenant, there were three parts, a promise that he would give a specific piece of real estate to Abram and his descendants, that he would have an innumerable number of descendants identified by the word seed, and that they would be a blessing to all mankind. So later, the land covenant is expanded in a different covenant, the land covenant, Deuteronomy 30. The Davidic covenant is expanded in 2 Samuel, is the expansion of the seed covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the blessing will be expanded in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Now, this is what God does. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, where is this? We have a map. This is a map of the uh, eastern Mediterranean. The This is Egypt down here on the uh, uh, to the south side of the Mediterranean. This area here that has the... Uh, uh, slanted lines, that is uh, part of what some believe is part of the promised land. That is the Sinai Peninsula. The area in green is the area of the tribal allotments that are described in the book of Joshua. Now, what's interesting is in the Bible, again and again, there's this idiom that the land of Israel goes from Beersheba to Dan. But the land, their promise actually went north of Dan and south of Beersheba. So these are talking about the general territories. And that's important because of what I'm getting ready to say. In light of what's going on in the Gaza Strip, I've read a lot of articles uh, that have talked about the history. A few will go back to the, to the Bible. And the reality is, is that Gaza and all of the Gaza Strip was in God's apportionment to Israel. And it was uh, identified as part of the territory of the tribe of Judah in the allotments covered in the book of, of Joshua. They never really controlled it. There's a certain amount of debate about it. But during the time of, of King Solomon, which is really where their territorial uh, expansion was at its greatest, it was said that it extended to Gaza. Now, remember I said that the Bible, Old Testament again and again, uses the idiom 
from Beersheba to, uh, to Dan or from Dan to Beersheba. So that to Gaza doesn't mean to the city limits. It didn't mean to the city limits of Beersheba. It didn't mean to the city limits of Dan. It meant it included uh, Dan. It included the territory of Dan and the territory of Beersheba. So that under Solomon, they, they extended, but they never gained all of the territory all the way down. And there's debate among scholars whether the river of Egypt is the Nile, which is how this map portrays it through these slanted lines, or whether it is only to the Wadi El Arish here, which is called the Brook of Egypt in, in other places. I think there's a good argument that Sinai was not included, but that's, that's like I said, it's highly debated. All of this land up to the river Euphrates is what God promised, and that all will be Israel's in the millennial kingdom. They have never controlled all of it, and they won't control it until the Lord comes back. So in the Old Testament, what we're seeing here is this unconditional covenant where this land grant has been given to David, I mean to Abraham. And so this is the idea of a possession. This, The title deed for that land has been given by God to Israel for all eternity. But that doesn't mean that they always occupied it or lived there. That's important distinction to make. Just because they've owned it, because they were disobedient to God, they were not allowed to occupy it, and they never fully occupied it in the Old Testament because of disobedience to God. But there are two kinds of inheritance we see in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18.2 says, um, in relation to the tribe of Levi, therefore they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. They will have no land possession. The Lord is their inheritance, as he said to them. So God said to Levi, you're a special tribe. You're not going to own any land. You are, I'm your possession. I'm your inheritance. So that's one kind of inheritance. It didn't include in the land. So there were people like Levites who were living in the land who didn't own the land. They had no inheritance in the land, but they were in the land. Okay, that's important because I think the analogy is there will be believers in the kingdom, but they don't have an inheritance in the kingdom, just as there were those in the kingdom of Israel who did not have ownership. Psalm seventy-three twenty-six says, My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. Now, I put this word maris in there. It's the word, the Greek word that's used in the Septuagint to translate portion. That's important because this is becomes a, a is a legal word for a share in an inheritance. We'll talk about it later. Oh, Psalm sixteen five. Oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. So this is David talking. He has this inheritance, which is God, but he also is of the tribe of Judah and is the king, so he has a physical inheritance. Psalm 119.57, you are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. So in the Old Testament, there are these two types of inheritance. The second type has that idea of possession in the land. And in Deuteronomy 18, 1 and 2, we're told that the Levites, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no part, no portion, no inheritance portion in with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his portion. The Lord is their inheritance. Numbers 18.20, then the Lord said to Aaron, who was the high priest, a Levite, you shall have no inheritance, no possession in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. So the conclusion is that there was a general inheritance of a relationship to God unrelated to the possession of land promised to Israel. In the same way, there are going to be two types of inheritance for us. In the Old Testament, some would be in the land, but with no possession in the land. And so this prepares us for what we see in the New Testament, that there is are two categories of inheritance. There is one that is general and for everyone that without distinction. And then there is the concept 
of having a share in the privileges and possessions in the kingdom. That gives us an understanding of what the Bible talks about when it uses this language. We just can't read our our ideas into it. We have to go through, look at how it is used, look at the words, look at the background, and then that prepares us to be able to understand some of these difficult passages, like the one we'll study next Sunday, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, talking about those who practice certain sins. Doesn't mean they can't be saved, won't be saved, aren't saved. It just means that they put in jeopardy their um, incentive clause, the rewards, the inheritance in the kingdom. So to remind you, all salvation is a free gift of God, not on the basis of works. Salvation is free. Rewards are earned. We'll come back and look at that more next time with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to work our way through Scripture so that we can come to understand the words that are used and, and how they are used in Scripture to convey, convey the proper meaning so that once we properly interpret the passage, we can understand what you are telling us. Father, challenge us with the fact that though we are saved, uh, we are to live a certain way in light of that incentive clause, the rewards that and positions and privileges that can be ours in the kingdom because we have grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray, too, that if there's anyone here, anyone listening online or listening to this recording in the future, that they may have never understood the free gift of salvation that is described in the Bible that this is not something that we bargain for. It is not something that we earn. It is not something that we have to clean up our lives in order to impress you. But it is simply recognition that there's absolutely nothing that we can do, that Christ did it all. Christ paid it all. And all we have to do is trust in him, that our Focus is on what Jesus did on the cross. He is our sacrifice. He paid the penalty for us. And by virtue of his work on the cross, he has given us eternal life. And for that, we are so very grateful. So, Father, we pray that you would encourage us with this and that you would use your word to challenge us in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.